Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. So, how's everybody doing out there? Well, I hope. Me? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I'm fine. I am getting a little stir-crazy, but I'm trying to remind myself of how fortunate I am and trying not to complain too much. I have been thinking a lot about one of my favorite pieces of literature, which is the Tennessee Williams play, The Glass Menagerie. It's about isolation and the inability to truly connect with other people, as well as the means at which one uses to escape this reality. It's a story that many of us can probably relate to as we currently shelter in place. I first read this play many years ago during a time in which I felt pretty isolated and unable to connect with others. And much like the place setting of St. Louis, I was also living in a big city full of people, yet I felt so alone and would often escape this reality through TV and naps. I did meet my wife during this period, and after initially failing miserably at first, I was able to open myself and eventually make this very important connection. But yeah, The Glass Menagerie, I love it. It's so good. It's a work that so effortlessly conjures the emotional and physical senses of time and place. Certain records have long had this ability with me, and perhaps that's why I responded to The Glass Menagerie the way in which I did. I remember while reading this play, I kept wanting to listen to The Velvet Underground's third record. Side note, Doug Yule, before joining The Velvets, was in a band called The Grass Menagerie. I first heard The Velvets' third record through my friend Alex McCullough. I've spoken many times on this show of the great importance of having cool, older individuals in your life as a teenager, and I know a lot of my musical taste developed directly from my friendship with Alex. Much like he had done so many times before, he lent me The Velvet Underground's third record because he thought it was something I needed to hear. Man, what a record, right? What goes on, pale blue eyes, I'm set free after hours. Think about how revelatory a record like that was for a 16-year-old living in a small southern town who hadn't really traveled too far beyond the neighboring states. I've never been to New York, but I feel like I've had a sense of that place from years of listening to this album. To me, it's the quintessential New York album. Not the New York that's so often depicted in TV and film as this place of constant motion, or even the seedier side that's evoked in the first two Velvet records, but more of that nocturnal big city loneliness I've been discussing. That's really what the third record evokes. There are instances on it of great intensity, but they're surrounded by these subdued moments of introspection. It's the sound of the party being over, but being unable to go to sleep. Really great records have this ability to transport the listener. And one fairly recent record that I have really loved and that I feel greatly accomplishes a similar vibe is City Music by Kansas City-based songwriter Kevin Morby. I first became aware of Morby as a member of the band Woods and really became a fan watching him play bass and harmonica at the same time when Woods opened for The Walkmen in 2012. I really liked the records he released with his band The Babies and really started to pay attention to him as a songwriter after hearing Miles, Miles, Miles from his solo debut. 
and it's been kind of amazing and inspiring to watch him progress as a songwriter. All of his records are great, but the one that really did it for me was City Music. I remember reading the record announcement online and being pretty impressed that he had another record coming out so soon after his last. And I was also pretty excited after reading that the mighty Richard Swift had co-produced this album. And when City Music was released, I put it on and I listened. This is the story of that record. Uh, my name is Kevin Morby and I play guitar and sing and wrote the songs for City Music. If you ever hear that thunder, put your eye to the sky, boy, and wonder. Maybe there's a kingdom above the weather. Oh, and whether you're gonna get our name is up to him. Kevin Morby was born in Texas, but would spend the majority of his youth in the Kansas City area. It is at an early age that Morby first becomes interested in music. I got into music around 10 years old, I would say. Um, yeah, I, my family and I was living in Oklahoma at that time, and just through things like the radio or, or CDs that my, my older sister Michaela would bring home is how I, I got interested in music. I got a guitar when I was 10 years old, and um, you know I didn't know how to tune it or anything, but I would, I would still kind of write funny songs on, a, on it. And then when I was 12, um, I started taking guitar lessons and sort of taking it more seriously. And I think that's when I started to, to sort of, you know, explore writing my own music and, and really becoming, I guess, obsessed with it. There was like a, a sort of thriving punk scene in, in Kansas City at the time when I was a kid. And, um, and yeah, I, I just kind of playing guitar and drums and, and a lot of those bands. At the age of 18, Morby decides to leave Kansas City and move to New York. Well, growing up in the Midwest, I feel like you're always, you want to move to either California or New York. And for the longest time, I, I, I really thought I was going to move to like where the sun was, to California. But I don't know. I dropped out of high school when I was 17, and um, I kind of didn't know what I was going to do for that year of my life. And I kind of just hung around Kansas City, you know, doing nothing. And um, when I turned 18, and I was legally allowed to, do whatever I want or go wherever I wanted to go. I just sort of on a whim chose New York and I'd always been fascinated with it. And um, I happened to have a few friends go out there at the time. So I kind of had an in um, to the city. So I, I sort of followed that and um, quickly became really obsessed with it. But, you know, I, I, I had been fascinated with it for years through like watching Bob Dylan documentaries or, you know, uh, reading about the Velvet Underground or, you know, anything like that. Just a lot of my heroes came from there, so I always wanted to go. It is after about a year of living in New York that Morby becomes the basis for the psychedelic folk rock band, Woods.
There used to be a member named Christian who played in the bands and um, a guy named Lucas. And the three of us worked together. And then um, Christian had moved away and I moved, I took his old room. And when I took his room, it was with the other members of Woods, with Jeremy and Jarvis. Just one thing sort of led to, to the next and they needed a bass player and they, they knew that I, I could play guitar. So they figured I could probably play bass as well. And they asked me to be in the band and that was that. But I was there for about a year, probably, before they asked me to, to join that. And once I joined Woods, everything sort of changed. And I learned, you know, how to become a touring musician and to, I guess, become like a quote-unquote professional musician. It is also during this time that Morby would begin to really focus on his songwriting. I think it was really a big part of, of my, my songwriting development was being in a house with Jeremy constantly and consistently writing songs, writing great songs, and just sort of being in that atmosphere and sort of existing with these songs in the air. And he was always recording something in the living room and I'd hear him take it to his room and he would, you know, put it on his stereo and be listening back to it or mixing it or whatever. And kind of just being around that process, I think, looking back, um, you know, it, it made a probably a bigger difference than, than I even know. But um I, I definitely was inspired by all of that. And I remember, you know, this is sort of pre like being able to do everything on like your, your voice memos in your phone or something. But I remember trying to four track stuff at that time and um, thinking I was like a lousy songwriter. And that's kind of a thing that I had when I moved to Brooklyn. Like I wanted to play music, but I really, you know, coming from a place like Kansas City and suddenly being surrounded by these amazing songwriters, I always felt like there was no space for me. Like I didn't need to try and be one of them. Um, I was just happy to sort of observe. But I would, yeah, I was always working on songs and then I started a band called The Babies shortly into Woods and that kind of um, gave me a platform to, to start taking it more seriously. Breaking the law, we used to break the law. Breaking the law, we used to break the law. Breaking the law, we used to break the law. Breaking the law. Cassie during the, that time had her band, The Vivian Girls, which that's sort of, you know, that's where most of her creativity went towards. So it was more, I brought in like 90% of the songs and Cassie would always bring in, you know, a, a, a couple of her own songs, um, stuff she didn't want to use in Vivian Girls for whatever reason. Um, but it was collaborative in a million other ways. Justin, who plays drums in The Babies and has played drums on most all my solo records and plays on City Music is very collaborative with him. And, you know, yeah, Cassie was always helping me sort of craft the songs or, you know, write guitar parts to them or whatever. And so it was definitely collaborative, but, you know, it, it was the line share my songs. In 2013, Morby decides to move to Los Angeles, California, and it is there that he begins his solo career. We actually did a few stints in L.A. through the years. I think in 2011 and then again in 2012 to record that second record. We, we went out to L.A. during the winter just to sort of escape the, the New York, you know, horrible winter. But um, 
But I officially moved there in 2013. And it was just sort of a thing where, you know, New York was getting super expensive and it was sort of, it was getting overrun in this way. I, I felt like it was becoming very crowded. There was suddenly a lot of bands and a lot of, a lot of people, you know, after sort of the same thing. And um, it just didn't feel as intimate and is sort of special as it felt at one point in my, my life. And all the DIY venues that I had, you know, come up going to and playing in we're all shutting down and at that time LA seemed like um it was like moving to the country basically you know for me after having lived in New York for seven years and I don't know it just seemed like a, a good time for me to go and sort of concentrate on something else and at that time LA was very it was it was very sparse you know I only had a handful of friends there and it by no means was a cool place to be and um it's just sort of a place to go and have cheap rent and and be able to, to, you know, kind of work on my, my newborn solo project. As much as I enjoyed being in like a unified group um, that, you know, a band provides, I was really ready to, to sort of have no rules. I really wanted to start a solo career to where I could literally just make anything. And if it was under my name, you know, I, I could put it out. And yeah, I don't know. I, I wanted to just play with a million different people and I wanted to tour in different formations and I just sort of wanted the all the freedoms that come with a solo project. So um, after like four or five years of being in, in both Woods and the Babies, it just felt like um, the right time. I, I feel like I learned skills through both of those bands and I was able to, to, to sort of take them and funnel them into this other thing. I always look at that time in my life as sort of like my college years. I never went to college. And like I said earlier, I dropped out of high school. So I always look at like Woods and, and the babies were sort of my education. And then I was able to like start. Um, it's like going to a trade school and then getting out and being like, now I'm going to begin my trade. Morby releases his solo debut, Harlem River, in 2013. And a year later releases his second album, Still Life. Both records are released by Woodsis Records, the great New York-based independent label ran by Morby's former bandmate, Jeremy Earle. Following the release of these records, other labels began to show interest, with Morby eventually signing with a larger independent label, Dead Oceans. Dead Oceans had, um, had shown interest pretty early on, but I didn't really know who they were at the time. And um, I think my whole progression as an artist in general it's it's been one one foot in front of the other you know like one step at a time and never never leaping too far and so you know i remember they showed interest after my after harlem river came out there was a lot of interest from them and, and a couple other labels but it just didn't i just didn't feel like i was quite there yet and i'd written the second record still life so quickly that it felt fitting to just sort of get it out on woods and to get it out quickly but once that was out then there was suddenly like a lot of managers and, and labels wanting to, to work with me. And it was all very new 
Um, and those first two records came out within a year of one another. So they came out very quickly. But, you know, I it's just one of those things. I think my friend Mike O'Neill actually gave me some good advice when, you know, I was sort of being courted by these labels. And he said, you know, whoever you choose to go with, just make sure it's someone you don't mind talking to for the next, uh, you know, five to ten years, however long it's going to take you to, to put out the records that are within your contract. And kind of with that in mind, I, you know, I just had such a good time talking to Phil who runs Dead Oceans, every time I would talk to him and he seemed like a sort of true music fan. And yeah, it, it was it was exciting, but it was also a little nerve wracking because coming from, you know, the background of like the, the Brooklyn DIY days, doing anything that wasn't sort of done yourself it was sort of frowned upon. And also it was just scary. You know, I, I didn't know exactly what that meant. I was just so used to working in the realms of DIY, but I love them a lot. And I actually just re-signed a contract with them and I, I love working with them and it's been really wonderful. Drummer Justin Sullivan, Morby's bandmate in The Babies, would continue to perform with the songwriter, both live and on record. And in 2014, Morby would meet guitarist Meg Duffy. Justin and I did a, a, a short West Coast and East Coast tour. And I've told this story before, and it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making it up or something, but I'm, I, I'm sure you that I'm not. But Justin and I, you know, after having played in The Babies for so long and uh, having really enjoyed like playing with a woman when, you know, being in the band with Cassie, I remember we had, we had said to each other that we wanted, you know, we wanted a woman in, in our bands and we went out on the road and, you know, it was just sort of like a, a godsend, you know, Meg literally opened up um, one of our shows with one of their old bands. I forget what the band was called, but they opened up um, at a venue called the half moon in Hudson, New York. And they had driven down from Albany, which is where Meg is from. And, and yeah, they played and they were wonderful. And I immediately was like, oh man, this guitar player is incredible. And um, Meg came up to me after the show and just introduced themselves and said, uh, you know, I think just literally it was as simple as Meg looked at me and said, like, I want to play in your band. And, you know, I'd already been thinking it, but I, I wasn't going to be the first to say it. And when, when Meg said that, you know, I kind of freaked out and I was like, are you serious? Because if you're serious, like, I'm serious too. And I'll, I'll you know, I, we have all this stuff lined up and I can take you to Europe and we'll, we'll do all this cool stuff. And yeah, and then, and then Meg joined right uh, early in the next year, in 2015. And um, though Meg is, you know, one of the best guitar players of our generation, my band wasn't to that point yet. You know, after I met Meg, Justin and I went to Europe as a duo. And that was a really, you know, before... Before that trip where we played as a duo in Europe, we it was kind of confusing as to what we wanted the band to be because coming after the babies, you know, being in this sort of rock band and then starting this sort of tamer solo project, we didn't quite know how to go about it. So we did a couple of formations of asking different musicians to, to help flush it out and nothing was quite sticking. And it's almost like we didn't know what we wanted it to be. Like if we wanted it to be like this punk thing or if we wanted it to be this classic rock thing. Um, but when we went to Europe as a duo, it kind of made us strip away everything and we had to operate on this whole different level. And once we did that, we were able to really build it up from there. So we did the duo tour and then we added Meg on bass and, and Meg played bass for about a year. And then in 2016, our friend Cyrus, who still plays bass in my band, he joined the band and then Meg moved to guitar. And then that kind of became like the band for a while, that, that four piece formation with Meg on guitar. You know, we logged many, many hours, many, many miles. In 2015, 
Morby begins writing the songs that would make up his Dead Oceans debut, but would also begin the songs for its follow-up. So in 2015 was a big writing year for me in that I wrote, I had signed with Dead Oceans and, um, you know, I, I was going to make an album for them. And I, I kind of ended up writing two at the same time. I wrote Singing Saw and City Music both at the same time. And I actually recorded both of them um, in 2015 as well. And then Singing Saw came out in 2016 and City Music came out in 2017. You know, I think um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and I was living sort of in the most rural part of, uh, you know, of this certain part of LA that you can live in. Um, and it was certainly the most rural place I'd ever lived in in my life, especially after coming from New York. It's a neighborhood called Mount Washington and it's, you know, it's, it's in the hills and it's, it's got coyotes and, um, gonna have these magical houses everywhere. And I was living there and it's the first time that I ever felt super isolated. So I started to write a record about that, which is called Singing Saw. And in writing that, it's almost like one part of my brain reacted to the part of my brain that was writing that album and it wanted to make a similar record but with a different landscape and that's how city music sort of started to come about and i just noticed that i sort of had these like pastoral folk songs um in one pocket and in my other pocket i sort of had these velvet underground patty smith inspired um you know uh like rock and roll songs something that would fit really well in a city and and they both are kind of tales of isolation, but through different lenses. And so it's something that I do a lot as a writer. Like once I'm writing one thing, um, another part of my brain wants to sort of write the, the, the opposite scope of that. For city music, Morby decides to go in a different direction from that of Singing Saw. Since Singing Saw had been done in this, this way where I had met up with producer Sam Cohen and the two of us had just sort of called in different musicians and kind of pieced together this very orchestral album, um, you know, brick by brick. I wanted to do the opposite thing with city music where I wanted it to just sort of be a band and um, have it really well rehearsed and sort of be able to go in the studio and not think too much about it, just sort of like it be more about capturing the performance than capturing the sounds, if that makes sense. Whereas Singing Saw was very sound oriented. And obviously I wanted city music to sound good, but it was more about, the the energy that was coming from from the musicianship my whole career i really like doing i like throwing curveballs i like throwing something and like i like following people's careers that are full of curveballs and you know i think a lot of people in their minds would think like if i made a record like singing saw my next record would sound like singing saw again but i'd be trying to push it push it even harder or something but i i'm more interested in kind of doing stuff that like surprising myself or surprising the listener with just, um, you know, a, a whole new concept or, or sort of like, um, it's like an etch-a-sketch. It's like, you know, like you erase the board and you have to start something completely new. So there's songwriters out there that, are, you know, you just kind of know what you're going to get. You know, it's going to sound like a country record or, you know, it's going to sound like a folk record, but it's those artists that are able to sort of shape shift that I, I've always been the most interested in. For the basic tracking, Morby, along with Sullivan and Duffy, work with engineer Drew Fisher at Panoramic Studios in Stinson Beach, California. Singing Saw is a record about rural Los Angeles, but I chose to record it in New York. And this is a, City Music is a record about New York, and I, uh, I, I decided to record it in rural California. <laughs> and I think there's something good to that. I think when you have a muse, you know, 
it's good to sort of go to the opposite place of that muse to, to capture it. Like you can go there to, to write about the muse, but it's almost nice to get away from it and sort of have this memory of it. So, um, you know, I chose Stinson beach as a sort of like, that's sort of the opposite of New York. And, but it's going to be a good place to sort of reflect on that. If that makes any sense. Also, we had just done this long European tour. That was kind of this long, shitty, horrible tour where, Meg had had some bad news come from home and uh, we, and so did I, and um, we lost all our luggage and like, it was just this horrible long tour through Europe and going to like a, a you know, a, a very scenic California studio on the ocean sounded like a nice thing to do. It is also around this time that Morby meets the late, great Richard Swift. musician and songwriter. Swift had released a number of records with Dead Ocean's sister label, Secretly Canadian, and throughout his career would accumulate a long list of credits, working with a number of notable acts including The Shins, Hamilton Lighthouser, The Black Keys, Damien Gerardo, The Pretenders, and many, many more. I think it was in LA. I was out at a bar in 2016. He came to the bar with Chris Swanson, who runs um, Secretly Canadian and Jack Jaguar. And um, yeah, that's where we first met. So I was a big fan. Like meeting him was definitely kind of like being in the presence of greatness. And I was sort of nervous to meet him, but he's, you know, he was so approachable and, and, and kind. And um, we, we instantly hit it off and became good buds. And it was one of those things where, you know, he's a producer. And in my mind, he was sort of this, this big producer that it would be impossible to work with. But I, I kind of mentioned it offhandly, you know, at, at this bar, like, oh, I would love to do something someday. And he was like, oh, well, get my contact and like, tell Chris to tell me because I would love to work with you. And it just happened super quickly and organically. In October of 2016, Morby travels to Cottage Grove, Oregon, to complete work on the record with Swift at his idiosyncratic recording studio, National Freedom. If you knew the guy, it's very Richard. It's very like... um yeah, sort of these fragmented pieces making this sort of uh, beautiful genius. Um, it's kind of everything I expected it to be. There was Palo Santo everywhere. The live room was really nice. Um, like it wasn't too big or anything, you know, it was just literally in like a back house behind his uh, his family's house and his three daughters lived above above the studio. They had like some rooms up there. And yeah, he had like really nice gear and it was like sort of messy, but sort of organized and... Um, you know, like it was, he did everything to a laptop, which I, I found hilarious because I'd never seen that before in my life, you know, like to have this really cool functioning studio. And then it's all just going into a laptop that he had to bring in from his main house from where he was watching South Park on it the night before or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And, you know, Richard was kind of going through a, a hard time as I, I think he, 
he really struggled for the last couple of years of his life, but it was a really wild week working with him. And I, I saw a lot of his demons, but I also saw a lot of wonderful things about him as well that week. And um, yeah, the studio was, it was just, it was a sort of warm, inviting environment that was full of a lot of cool things. And he made a lot of really amazing music in it. And in the end, he made a record. with the subtle and sparse Come To Me Now. And as all great opening tracks are meant to do, this song greatly sets the tone for the rest of the record, as if it's saying to the listener that this is not just a collection of songs, but rather a group working together to express some specific truth. The combination of Morby's wearied vocals, atmospheric flourishes, and haunting pump organ create a sound this both old and new. It is a very contemporary sounding song. I, there's something kind of cool and archaic about it because, you know, perhaps that pump organ sound is, you would usually hear that through like a something digital or a synthesizer or something. And um, this is just the origin of, you know, a sound that would usually be a setting on something electronic. Um, but yeah, that song, we, you know, like we recorded at Stinson Beach and they had a pump organ there. And so, sort of old and uh you know beautiful looking it looks just like a piece of furniture like kind of in your mind you just sort of uh signal it as something that's probably not going to to be working or something that is just there for show it looked like a big chimney or something i felt in my memory it was um took up like most of this wall and also the guy who um there's some story i forget it now but the guy who originally owned this building of this studio who's dead now, apparently his ghost haunts this, this, this studio. And, um, there's a, there's a, a photo, kind of this creepy photo of him above the pump organ. So everything about it was just sort of haunted. But, um, at one point someone played it or something. I was like, Oh, I, that works. You know, I had no idea. And then we, you know, I was like, Oh, well, I have this one song I wanted to play on keys. We should use this. And then I, we, we tracked it very quickly. And, um, I, Meg was playing guitar and, and did some sort of atmospherical stuff on guitar and then Justin got behind the drums and then I got at the pump organ and we, we tracked it pretty quickly and that's that's one, that's the first song I worked on with Richard and we worked on it within like the first hour of me being there 
And I felt like I really watched his genius come out very spontaneously and very quickly. Like he just sort of listened to the song and then like wrote that part at the end of the song that like, wah, 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 wah. Yeah, dude. He just sort of pulled that out of nowhere and he like sang into this little app on his iPad that created um, this segment of keys with his voice. And then he played it on the keys and then he like hit record and ran into the live room and did this drum fill. And he kind of just did it all without asking and just, it was just like this, he's like this tornado in the studio, just like ping ponging back and forth between the control room and the live room. And um, he just sort of like reshaped the song in this really cool way, like right in the 11th hour. Continuing the record's lyrical theme of isolation, as well as introducing the album's eye motif, is the driving track, Cry Baby. And much like he had done on the previous track, Morby does a lot with very little. The backing tracks consist of your basic configuration of guitar, bass, drums, and piano, but throughout the song are these subtle touches that really make it special like the synth part that leads into the song's rollicking chorus. Yes, that's Swift. So that is, um, you know, when we decided to work together and before I even went up there or anything, I sent that song to Richard and he was like, let, let me do some stuff to it and see if you'll you like my vibe like enough to want to come up and work with me. And he did that and then he did the backups too. He sings that sort of falsetto cry baby with me. And you cry, cry baby. I remember when he sent it to me, I was a little confused. I was a little bit like, 
oh, I don't know about like a synth part or something. I don't know. But then I listened to it a few more times and then I was like, oh, it's really catchy. And now, you know, looking back on it, like I'm such a huge fan of all the work he did, especially with Damien Gerardo. And there's a lot of that sort of thing on those records. And uh, yeah, I love those parts. It really, it made it into something new and different. But uh, yeah, I feel like Cry Baby is a song that Justin and I had sort of formed around the time of the babies uh, right before we broke up. To me, yeah, that was always sort of going to be a baby song and then ended up not being. And, and, but we sort of had it in our, our register and um, we, we, we sort of pulled it out for this. I just thought it was fitting. Just, you know, I wanted to make the record more of a rock record. And there is sort of this motif of like tears and, and um, just sort of like this, this sort of weeping, uh, uh, this person weeping in a, a, to a cityscape or something. And it felt fitting. And um, yeah, I think weirdly that song always was inspired to me. I felt like it, it was something I could hear like Deer Hunter doing. And I'm a big Deer Hunter fan. It's just sort of a, a song that, that we, we, we had sort of left over from this other time in our lives that we, we brought back to this record. Come on, cry, cry, baby. You know, Meg is so talented, and, and Meg sort of is from a different musical background than me or Justin. Me and Justin are, um, you know, we're, we're very self-taught, and Meg has a lot of self-teaching too, but Meg did go to college for guitar and sort of can work within music theory and stuff, and Justin and I come from these sort of punk backgrounds, so our reference points are pretty, you know, like two-dimensional or something, and Meg was playing most all the piano stuff on this record, so when we're telling Meg, like... I remember being in the control room and saying like, Meg, can you just do a take now? Just one single note, just ding, 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 ding. And Meg, it was like the first like five passes of it couldn't allow themselves to do that. And Meg kept like throwing in some weird other note with it. We'd be like, Meg, no, believe us. Like you just have to do this one note. And I, it's just a funny memory. Following Cry Baby and in keeping with the record's New York theme, is the Ramones tribute, one, two, three, four. Everybody talking about one, two, three, four. Everybody talking about one, two, three, four. Everybody do the one, two, three, four. Everybody talking about one, two, three. Well, you know I'd walk a mile just to die. Gonna learn what that door is for. Gonna learn what that door is for. Like the beginning of me writing that song, I remember someone like seeing the hashtag one two three four, and I thought that was really funny. I thought uh, it made me want to write a song called hashtag one two three four, and so then I wrote the song that is now one two three four. I bailed out on it be being called hashtag one two three four because I didn't want to root it that much in like a, you know Twitter, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I remember thinking it would be a song that like Parquet Courts would have or something. Like I was, I was kind of like, um, 
I don't know. I, I was going outside my own box to, to sort of write this punk song about um, the Ramones and then to quote Jim Carroll in it. It was a it was a really fun song. We on that record we'd play it live and and that was fun. But yeah, it was just a sort of homage to 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 those people, to to the Ramones and to Jim Carroll and to that part of a uh, you know the legacy of New York punk rock from the seventies. You know, with all this discussion of the Ramones, it would seem like a waste if we didn't find out what Kevin Morby's favorite Ramones song is. And in case you were wondering what mine is, it's I Want You Around from End of the Century. I mean, that's a tough one. You know you know what a deep cut is that I really love that probably gets stuck in my head more than any other Ramones song is Pet Cemetery. It's a great song, and it gets stuck in my head. And Cassie... He's a huge Cassie Ramone, obviously a huge Ramones fan. And I feel like um, any fandom I have, the Ramones really comes directly from her. But she would sing that song all the time. And it's an amazing song. And the chorus is just this sort of genius chorus. Don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. Don't want to live this life again. I always thought was so brilliant. And I think that's the thing about the Ramones is they're, it's so pop. It's like, in, you know, and like it's literally the birth of pop punk. And there's actually this sound clip of uh, Lou Reed listening to Ramones for the first time. It's amazing that that exists at all. Even saying the sentence gives me chills, but it's incredible because, you know, Lou Reed sort of created punk without meaning to in the sense of like this sort of dark, like fucked up deconstruction of pop songs. And it's him hearing the Ramones for the first time. And I just imagine like you're Lou Reed and it's like, you're like the embodiment of like, heroin and and you know the this sort of dark thing and then you hear this thing that is like this bubblegum version of that and he's blown away by it like he and it's really it's really cool he's talking to a friend of his and he's like oh man he's like the world's never going to be the same like listen how fast they're playing and teenagers are going to love this and parents won't know what to do and it's it's really cool and it's so great that he can't even hate this you know that it's just so undeniably fun and and free he's someone that anyone who who showed like a who wore his his influence on their sleeves you know he wasn't going to at least admit that he had any respect for and perhaps that's why then hearing you know the Ramones he's like oh these guys are they're onto some their whole their whole new thing there exists a fine line between sweetness and sentimentality and Morby accomplishes this difficult task in his loving ode to friendship the wonderful track aboard my train I once loved a boy so smart and true We would walk home Every day from the school He'd say I think we could walk forever Oh no, have it just a little while Okay, he wouldn't make me laugh like the devil Ha ha, he would pick me up like the child that I was in my time I'd like to stay young forever like a tide the crest burning sunny weather may we fill these lungs with laughter and may we shake these bones with style I actually, there's a lot of time where I'm playing that live, and sometimes, you know, as the fan base has gotten bigger, every once in a while, they'll, you know, you'll, you'll see some sort of, you know, whatever, just some sort of bros at your show or something, and I always see them kind of, like, cock their head to the side or something when I play that song, and, um, but yeah, you know, hopefully they can come to terms that it's, it's also okay to, to love, love somebody else. Um, 
that song, I remember I was listening to a lot of Nina Simone at the time. And I'm sort of, she's always on constant rotation with me. But, you know, Nina Simone has a lot of sweet songs. She has a lot of, you know, very like, I feel like she's got like three different types of songs, you know, and, and some of them are very angry and some of them are very informative. And then she has this sort of like um, way of telling sweet stories. And I think I was probably just getting into her around that time and really starting to become obsessed with her. And I wanted to just sort of tell a story and, and sing it in a way that like a child could relate to it. And in going a little further with that, I wanted it to sort of be about my childhood. And and so I actually, I wrote this song. It's about my first best friend that I have a memory of. Uh, was my His name was Pablin and he lived across the street from my family and I when we lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And just kind of my first memories on earth are, are hanging out with this friend of mine. And um, yeah, it's just sort of about the, the first feelings of having you know, a sort of affection for another person or feeling sort of warmed by the presence of, of another person. And I guess in the beginning, it's about, it's about this one specific person. And then it kind of goes on to say, like, you know, no matter who you are in my life, like you, you've played some role and I played some role in yours. And, um, but yeah, the friend that it was about is actually, this is kind of a dark uh, part of that story, but, um, uh, he's in my memory forever, but I, I hadn't like thought to ever try to reach out to him or anything. And after I released the song and my mom heard what it was about, she tried to look up the family and we found that he had actually uh, gotten into some sort of drunk driving accident when he was in his early twenties. And he's been in jail ever since then. He's going to be in jail the rest of his life. Sort of crazy thing to find out. Um, but, uh, but there's a song out there about him. Maybe someday you'll somehow hear it. Three, four. this record is though meg is on it it's funny like meg does some sort of guitar harmonies like on the song city music but all the guitar solos are mine um which is funny because meg does play all over the record but it's mainly bass and piano and the guitar stuff that meg does is is either sort of harmonizing to what i'm doing or doing atmospherical stuff i think it's cool because meg is so incredibly talented and it's kind of fun it's almost like a secret to to know that like their talents are going to to other places on this record exploring other things again evoking the late night weariness that's such a big part of this record sound is the beautiful number dry your eyes i've had this fairly recent realization about my musical taste it is often the faster songs that hook me 
but it's the slower ones that stay with me and often become my favorite songs from a particular record. And Dry Your Eyes is a song that I'm constantly coming back to. It's a song that channels the Velvet Underground's third record, but isn't a carbon copy. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely very Lou Reed influenced. And um, this is actually my favorite song on the record. Um, and as much as I, I love playing with Justin and Meg, and I think we, we created something really great, and I'm very proud of, this is the one song on the album that is entirely just me and Richard. And I think there was this thing for me going into work with him and knowing he was going to add to the songs and then also mix the songs. I was really happy about that, but there's a part of me that was like, oh man, I, I would love though to, to one day make a record with Richard where it's just the songs I, I just go in with him and we build them up from the ground up. Um, and while I was up there, I kind of realized that I had this song and, um, you know, I was like, oh, do you mind if on top of doing all this other stuff, if like we, we were to record a song in its entirety and, you know, it, two hours later we had this recording and um, yeah, it's just one of those things. Like we went into uh, the live room and he'd hit record and he just took one mic. And I remember like the mic was on this like big, huge mic stand and he sort of swung the arm of the mic stand into the studio and just let it land wherever it landed. And he was like, that looks good. Let's just play. And I remember sort of being like, really? You don't want to like set up like mics on the drums and the guitar. And he's like, no, we got this one. It'll just record what's happening in the room. And that's the take of the drums and the guitar. And, and then we did, uh, he, he played bass direct into the board separately. And then I did the vocal separately and it was just so fun. We just had like this really fun afternoon recording that song. And I think as an artist, you always have an idea of what you want something to sound like, and you can hear it in your head and you'll make a demo of it and you'll get close. And then you go into the studio and it's like 100% of the time, it's going to be different than what you envisioned. Like you, you're always going to go in with this expectation and it's always going to be something different than you expected. And it's only a matter of like, if you like it or not. Um, and this is the one time in my career that I heard something in my head and I wanted it to sound a certain way. And it absolutely sounded that way. And I think there's just something so cool to that. Like that's by far out of my whole catalog, my favorite song sonically and the most fun for me to listen to and you know the vocals on this, this song are panned hard right and i remember doing that and sort of making that last minute decision and like saying it to swift and he was like yeah let's pan it hard right he's like let's do something that in 20 years if we listen to this song it's going to sound stupid and we'll wonder why we did this and <laughs> i thought that was so so fun and um but yeah and the subject matter of the song is sort of like uh, what we're saying earlier about Crybaby, just sort of about being out of touch with the city. And, you know, a lot of these songs, I've been doing these sort of live Instagram performances since the quarantine. And it's funny because this this is a record largely about isolation and um, about being in a city, but not being able to connect with the people or the city itself and sort of just being locked away in, you know, your living space. And so it's been interesting to to sort of revisit them and, this song sort of works well for, for one in a quarantine. If one ever needed an example of the greatness of Richard Swift and his ability to add special moments to a recording, one only needs to hear Swift's beautiful and subtle background vocals. Now there's tears in my eyes, tears in my eyes, oh, tears in my Tears in my eyes, tears in my eyes, oh. 
that part is so amazing and to watch him do that was so incredible to do that three-part harmony with himself and um yeah you, you know he just beat his control control board and he'd hit recording and run into the live room at the mic and he'd lay down one vocal take and then he'd you know go back and hit stop and uh, rewind and then go back and do it again and then he just had sort of created this little choir of himself and i just remember just literally sitting on the couch watching him do it being like oh my god i'm so lucky that i get to make music with this guy right now look tarwater said suddenly sitting forward his face close to the windshield we're headed in the wrong direction. We're going back where we came from. There's the fire again, the fire we left. Ahead of them in the sky, there was a faint glow, steady and not made by lightning. Acton is a segue into the album's title track. The track Flannery is a reading of an excerpt from Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bared It Away by San Francisco-based artist Meg Baird. Well, I've always loved skits. You know, I've always loved like the the use of skits, especially in like hip hop. Um, I always just feel like it tells a broader story. It, it sort of gives this this extra platform to to kind of get your sentiment across. I've always felt it's like sort of like listening to a movie um, when you have skits accompanied with the music. It sort of gives it this more three dimensional um, experience and. I had read The Violent Bear Away earlier that year, or I guess in 2015, and I was really moved by it, and I, I really loved it a lot. And there's just that scene out of the book where um, this character, who's never seen a city before, is describing driving towards a city and thinking that it's on fire. And I just thought that that imagery was so moving, and I, and I loved it so much. And it was a really cool story um, on on getting the, the rights to that, because, you know since we were taking it as a direct quote from Flannery O'Connor, we had to get in touch with her estate and we kept writing them. And my record label kept writing them just sort of this very official sort of like, we want to use this and can we use this? And um, let's just discuss like the, you know, the, the legal function of it or whatever. And um, they kept not writing back. And then sort of like in the final hour, it seemed like we were just going to have to leave it off. And I was really bummed. And I remember kind of being like, well, if I have to leave this off the record, I don't even want to put the record out, but which seems insane. But um, as a sort of like hail Mary, I decided to just like write out this very long thing of why I loved it so much and why I thought it was important to my record. And I wrote it and sent it to the estate. And then they wrote us right back and they were so happy and they wanted to talk to me about the book. And I think once I just put a little bit of, um, you know, I took the legality out, out of it a little bit or something and just sort of let them know exactly what it meant to me and why I liked it so much. They were really happy to, to oblige. Meg Baird, who, who does, who reads that is she's incredible. And we've toured a lot together and she's someone I've always looked up to. And, and I really like her a lot. And her voice is just very soothing and so calming. And she sings a little bit on this record and yeah, she's just the best. When I thought of who would sound good reading that, you know, she, she, first person to come to mind and she was so great in doing so but yeah it was all sort of setting that up to to hopefully knock the listener over with city music
You know, it really wouldn't be a record about New York without a successful channeling of the sounds of CBGBs, and specifically that of television. With its great mix of steady rhythms, lurking bassline, and mantra-like lyrics, the title track's true highlight is the dynamic guitar interplay between Morby and Duffy. Oh, that city music That city said You know, when I first wrote City Music, it's one of those songs I feel like as an artist, you always kind of have this like bag of, of unused songs that you kind of carry around with you. And when I was like 20, I went on a camping trip and I wrote um, on a little acoustic guitar right by the fire one, one morning by myself or something. I wrote that little riff. That and I remember writing it and thinking, you know, that it would sound... Like, because it was on an acoustic guitar, I was like, oh, this would be cool on a banjo or something, like very, like a very, like, folk melody. And I, I recognized that it was catchy, but, you know, I always meant to do something with it, and then I just never did. And then, you know, when we're writing this record, I think I played it almost as, like, a joke. Or not a joke, but just, like, I was just playing it while someone was tuning or something during a practice. And then Justin started to play the drums to it, and then Meg wrote that bass line. And that bass line's a huge part of this song. And... Then we all shaped it together. That's a, that's a very collaborative example of this record was the writing of that song and sort of shaping it. Cause it's very unconventional and it, we kept being like, is it too long? Is it too weird? Is the build up too much? And, you know, I think in the end we, we kind of got this really bizarrely perfect piece of music. It was kind of funny at first, and I, you know, I, I felt a little self-conscious. I felt like the lyrics were stupid, or like it was just this sort of like bonehead song. But I, I really like it, and it's so fun to play live. That's one of my favorite songs, you know, to forever play live. I remember about the lyrics. Like I remember at one point trying to write, sort of like I tried to write different lyrics for it, or like something a little bit more with a little bit more depth or something. And I remember showing it to Justin and he was like, no, 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 like leave it where it's at. Like sim simplicity is key for something like this. Like it doesn't need to, he's like, you're conveying the emotion. And yeah, he was, 
he was uh, important in, in making me dial it back a little bit. I live high, oh my tin can up in the sky. All those people down below, oh that city that I long to know. Moving fast, what's their name? Where they going and from which hole they came? I'm no one but a face, just a stranger in a stranger place. Breathing out, breathing in, sun came up, then it went down again. As I say, I am a visitor. tin can up in the sky all those people down below oh they're just people that i long to show following the title track is tin can opening with a driving guitar rhythm and a propulsive motucker like snare beat the track then builds to this transcendent guitar jam in the song's middle before returning to its verses but still keeping that same energy and then transitioning yet again into another groove, bringing in organ and bongos. There's such an incredible swagger to this song, which is really the result of the track's smart arrangement. But I don't mind that we've never been able to play live for some reason. We've tried it a million times. And there's actually a couple songs on this record. Pearly Gates is another one. Yeah, Tin Can, you know, it's it's the same sort of imagery and subject matter as Dry Your Eyes or Cry Baby. And, you know, it's once again dealing with something like I was just saying, like I, I feel like it's very probably relatable if you live in a, a major city like Paris or New York or something right now during the quarantine. But it's literally about like existing in an apartment and watching the city sort of from your perch and, and not knowing how to relate to it. But, um, but yeah, once again, like all the, all the soloing in it is very like velvets inspired and the song itself is very velvets inspired and just wanted to be this sort of like sidewalk jammer, you know? And, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's that one. If I'm ever re-listening to the record, it's one of my favorite ones to listen to because I, I feel like it has a good energy to it and it's just sort of, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just this fun, fun song that I'm proud of. Continuing the record's eye motif is a cover of the song Caught My Eye by the late 70s, early 80s Los Angeles-based punk band The Germs. Okay, you 
can feel my every sin When I walk right in a straight line This world of yours Well, I've got you caught In my eyes Again You're the fall guy I'd written it with my own lyrics at one point, and I was never satisfied with the lyrics for whatever reason. And then my friend Johnny, um, who was a good friend of mine from New York when I was living there, he he had said at one point in our friendship that he thought the most beautiful uh, poetry was Darby Crashett from the Germs lyrics, especially this song, Caught in My Eye. And it was his birthday, and... I had this riff and and I sang those lyrics over the riff and I sent it to him for his birthday. And it's just something that I liked. And when we're in the studio, I, I was like, you know, oh, I did this thing. We should, we should record it while we're in here. And that's when Meg Baird came in to, to say the thing. And so we had her around and she sang those vocals. reminded me of uh Cass McCombs or something like that the whole song you know and I'm a big fan of his work and um yeah and I guess it's maybe a little bit of a stretch but it kind of is included in the city music theme because the germs were a band from the 70s in LA and even though I was kind of dealing more with the New York landscape like there's something about Darby Crash as such a sort of icon and um you know this young kid in a leather jacket with spiky hair and you know, I thought it was kind of cool to release this sort of folk take on it. We get the track, Nighttime. It's a song very befitting of its title. The combination of hushed rhythms, traveling bass line, and Duffy's elegant piano work serve as a blanket for the track's true highlight, which is Morby's expressive vocals that evoke a sort of sad, drunken weariness. I mean, just listen to this part here. If you Choose. Isn't that good? You know, I think 
it's really the same character throughout this whole record, but especially in songs like this or Come to Me Now or Dry Your Eyes. It's all this kind of same character to me. And um, yeah, you know, I think that the description or the, the scene I'm trying to place here is like someone's in their apartment and they're sort of half drunk and they're like drinking um, whiskey and they're, they're, they're listening to, to records and they're just sort of in this weird belligerent state. There's actually this... Um, Nina Simone song called Turn Me On um, that was an inspiration for this song and um, yeah I'm just kind of describing the scene of someone sort of, sort of this like paranoid shut-in but it's it's kind of the nighttime is has sort of taken over so they're allowing themselves to sort of relax and like have a drink and they're sort of belligerent and I think we did it live so me at the guitar and Justin playing drums and Meg's on piano track is the pop gem Pearly Gates. With its big beat, organ fills, and tasteful guitar licks, the song has the vibe of indie rockers playing soul music. But what really makes this track special is its triumphant chorus, aided by the sound of singing youth, which I've always been a sucker for, ever since falling in love with a Charlie Brown Christmas. Lyrically, the song contains the themes of death and religion, which are subjects that Morby has often explored through his songwriting. I think it's just sort of me being fascinated by religion as a whole. Um, you know, no matter what you practice, having grown up in the Midwest and sort of grown up around it, but my family never really belonged to the church. Um, so it was always something that was at arm's length that I was always... You know, had I grown up in the church, I, I think I'd probably be sick of it or be over it or I'd know all the ins and outs of it. 
So I don't think I'd have a fascination towards it, but just growing up around sort of the fear mongering that takes place with it, or, you know, some of the good things that take place with it too, it just sort of made me have this distant fascination with it. This one, in my mind, I feel like there's a lot of times as an artist where you go into a studio thinking one specific song in in your collection is going to end up being the single. And for the longest time, like when I wrote this record, I was like, oh, I've got this one and it's going to be the the big hit. But then when I recorded it, it didn't feel like that. But I've I've always really loved this song. I've always been really proud of the lyrics. I like, like, I understand why maybe the lyrics aren't, they don't jump through the speaker in the way that some of the other records or lyrics on this record might. But to me, they sort of mean the most of any song on this record. Um, I think these are the closest to me. And, you know, Richard Swift's three children sing on this song, which is special to me. And I like that they're on the record and they're involved in the recording. Um, So that makes it special. And yeah, this is, I I don't know. I feel like this is very closely related to, to, um, uh, tin can into city music uh, sonically and um, yeah where it's coming from mother sister comfort me feel so wet and cold and downtown's lights look like a fire as I'm headed out in the snow You know I've come to live one thousand lives And to die one thousand deaths But lately, baby, got me scared I ain't got too much left I watch the time fly like a sparrow I watch the light off like dominoes uh-uh. the church bears the record ends in a way similar to which it first began with the sparse and intimate downtown lights it's a beautiful and calming number and very much in the vein of a standard folk song. But rather than using the obvious choice of an acoustic guitar that would be typical in a song like this, Morby quietly strums an electric guitar and nicely concludes city music. Yeah, you know, it is a funny choice, but I think it ultimately comes from the fact of like, it, you know, wanting to do the opposite of what singing saw was, you know, I, so I decided to play it on electric guitar and yeah, just sort of having like, um, like, you know, pale blue eyes is an electric guitar and, yeah. and, and there's this way to make a quieter song with, you know, electric instruments. Um, and it's, it sort of lies in the performance. And what I like about that is it, it goes back to me saying that I wanted this record to feel like a performance based on the band rather than, um, you know, based on bringing in a bunch of like professionals or something. And in my mind, we did this record and we did it all in this one room. And it's kind of like, we got to this song and we kind of recorded in order. And then we got to this song and it's like, well, you know, we're not going to bring any new instruments in. Let's just play it how we've been playing it. And, and I'll just use this, this electric guitar. And, 
Um, yeah, I like this song a lot. My girlfriend and I, we, we've, we've played it a lot live, like when she's, she sang with me and, um, it's just, it's, um, it's something that once again, in this quarantine, I, I find it interesting looking at it through a new lens. You know, there's a, this whole idea of downtown's locked up and, and you don't have a key to unlock it. Like you, you, you can't break through to it. And, um, this is a song I sing in this character, um, mother, sister, which in my mind is two separate people. It's, it's, it's very literally like a mother and a sister. But the idea of that as like a, as a name came to me because actually of, of uh, Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing film. Um, there's a character in it named Mother Sister. And she's kind of the woman who overlooks the block and is kind of like the all-seeing eyes. And there's something very biblical and religious about her. And her name is Mother Sister. And I just thought that was such a beautiful name. But, um, you know, when I recorded this song and we were mixing it with Swift and, and he added some, some flourish to it, um, his mom and sister had died very suddenly within the same like year and a half period or something. His, his sister died of cancer pretty, pretty suddenly. And his mom died of a heart problem, I believe. So I, you know, I didn't even really think about that, but when we would listen to this song, he would kind of walk away from the control board and he had this, you know, like these steps in his studio and he would sit down on the steps and kind of put his head down. And, and I think the song made him very emotional and I just have, it's a sad memory, but it's a good memory. Just, knowing that he was so moved by it and he would listen to this song and he would kind of put his head down. And when the song would be over, he would kind of look up and be like, man, that's a, that's a good song. And he had this framed photo of his mother that he would, he would kiss his hand and then he, he would, he would touch the photo. And I remember him doing that and sort of a sweet memory of this song. For the album art, Morby chooses a black and white photograph of him staring into a mirror. The apartment and Morby's outfit convey central ideas expressed within the record i'm wearing this sort of dress uh, or sort of like long skirt with this this sweater that my friend judith who makes all my sort of nudie suits that i wear live mm -hmm. made for me and um i wanted the cover to be very androgynous i didn't want it to be necessarily male or female and i wanted you know there was uh, trying to think of the guy's name from this article there's this new york times article about this guy who was a shut-in and after he died um it's so, so funny because uh, my memory is just is just let go of this name um but it was such a huge part of this record and for so long that it, it was this name was always in my mouth but um it this guy he he um he lived in his apartment he was found after he had died and and you know it was just sort of the study of a recluse and that this guy had like lived his whole life and you know but kind of lived it alone and so that was a big muse for making this record, but I sort of came up with my own character, um, uh, sort of this old woman, and I gave her name, the name Mabel. And um, so the cover is sort of me as her in a way, and something that I would, I would picture her wearing. And um, we shot in my friend Carolina's uh, apartment in New York City. My friend Carolina is, she's like a sister to me, very dear friend of mine. And, um, she has like her apartments always just look great and have a lot of cool stuff and sort of old antiques mirrors and, and jewelry and stuff. And um, it's just sort of what I envisioned for, you know, the setting of this record. Dead Oceans releases City Music on June 16th, 2017. Continuing the impressive pace at which he releases new music, 
The record comes out just a little over a year after singing Saul. And because the two records were essentially made around the same time, the pressure to follow up the critical success of singing Saul was fairly absent. So I think because singing Saul got a lot of traction and was very critically acclaimed, a lot of people wondering what the follow-up would be like. And I think because, like, I just had no fear because I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd already written it and it was just its own world. You know, I, I, I wasn't trying to make the same record as Singing Saw and I knew I'd made something completely different. And I just knew that I'd made something that was all its own. So I had no fear of putting it out. And because I sort of been sitting on it for so long, it was almost like, oh yeah, I forgot I have this thing. Like there's, I don't even have to worry about writing new songs or anything because I have this whole record that's ready to go. And when we're relearning the songs for it live and stuff, it's almost like learning someone else's songs. Um, but, you know, critically, it, it honestly did better than I kind of thought it would be. I kind of thought it'd fly a little bit more under the radar than it did because it was coming out so quickly after Singing Saw. But um, I, I feel it's almost like the two records work together to be one one big record or something. And I felt like, you know, with singing saw, I, I finally, the critics were paying attention to me and saying nice things about me, but I didn't necessarily see that reflected live. Like my, I didn't, the crowds weren't getting huge or anything. And then I felt like with city music crowds went up a notch. And those songs also, I think played a big part in that because they're fun to play. And, and it kind of made the live shows fun in this way and, and sort of more energetic the time following the release of City Music would also be marked by some significant changes in Morby's life. By the end of 2017, Morby leaves Los Angeles and moves back to Kansas City. Justin Sullivan would leave Morby's touring band in 2016 and would eventually focus his efforts on his songwriting, releasing a wonderful record under the name Night Shop in 2018 through Morby's Woodsis imprint, Mare Records. Towards the end of 2018, Meg Duffy, who Morby rightfully called one of the great guitarists of our generation, would leave the touring band at the end of the City Music Tour to continue their focus on their consistently satisfying project, Hand Habits. And sadly, in July of 2018, the great Richard Swift passes away. He was truly a one-of-a-kind artist, and the contributions he made with his own work and that of other artists, exemplify the huge loss caused by his death. Swiss contributions to city music are just one of the many aspects that make this such a special record. And as for Morby's feelings on the album, it is a record in his catalog to which he holds very dear. I think in my trajectory, I have two types of albums. And there's one is this big statement that I'm trying to make. And I would say that's like Harlem River and Singing Saw and Oh My God are records like that. And then I feel like I have records that are like Still Life and City Music. And this next record that I, that I, I actually have another record done and it'll be my next one to come out. But these records that are kind of reactions to those bigger statements that are kind of their own statement, um, that are, that are, they're kind of the curveballs. And it's hard to explain, but with singing saw and Oh my God and Harlem river, I feel like I'm burying my soul. I feel like I'm really, I, I'm, I think a lot about those records and a lot of thought went into the, the process of making them. And I sort of lost sleep over them. And then 
records like um, city music are these sort of um, things I do in the off time. It's, it's almost like this little thing I write as like an exercise or something. So I'm in a way able to sort of love them more because they're, they're, they're sort of these destinations for me. Um, Justin, who, who plays with me and, you know, plays on this record we've been talking about, he, he describes that kind of writing for me as my destination writing. It's sort of like this vacation that I take, whereas the other places like my reality, these are like my vacations. So City Music is a very special record to me. And all my records are special in one way or another, but it's special in that it's sort of, sort of this own little universe. It's something I can look at sometimes and be like, oh, it's, it's interesting I wrote that. Like I, I, I don't know who I was in that time of making it. Whereas something like Singing Saw, I feel like, oh, that's me. That's who I still am. But City Music, yeah, it's sort of this destination that I took. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Kevin Morby for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy City Music and more from Morby's catalog at kevinmorby.com, various streaming platforms, and deadoceans.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.